much. I agree with you in theory. In theory, communism works. In theory. Hello, and welcome to episode one of Works in Theory podcast, the podcast where we read theory so you don't have to. Uh, my name's Nate, and uh, I'm here with my co-hosts, Alicia. Hey. And Tom. Hello. And just in case you uh, didn't spend the time to listen to our intro episode, we'll uh, give you a quick cliff notes here. Uh, this is going to be a podcast sort of dedicated to uh, reading leftist theory books and breaking them down into layman's terms, uh, discussing them in a hopefully approachable way uh, to try to get this information out there uh, without expecting people to actually sit down and read these big books. Uh, so I guess without further ado, uh, Alicia, you want to start us off, talk about the, the work we're going to be talking about today? Sure. For our first work in theory, we are talking about the book Mutual Aid, A Factor of Evolution. And this book was first published in 1902. It's actually a series of essays written over a bunch of years prior to 1902 by Peter Kropotkin. And overall, what Kropotkin does at this book is to put forward and defend a view of evolution and by extension, social progress that was radically different from the one that was popular at the time. Interestingly, the theory that was popular at the time actually still holds some ground today. And really, whether we like it or not, we all know it. Uh, survival of the fittest, that little catchphrase that we associate with Charles Darwin and his work on the origin of species. When somebody says survival of the fittest, culturally, what we tend to understand by fittest is like physically fittest, like woodwind in a fist fight fittest, or fittest like who can gather the most resources for themselves, scramble when those resources are limited. But to challenge that, in this book, Kropotkin insists, as you can tell from the title, uh, maybe you can't tell from the title. I don't know. What can you tell from the title? That's that's. that's we're gonna ask that question for ourselves on the next book. <laughs> this uh this this episode was a a big learning curve for how we want to run this show. So bear with us as we move forward here. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but uh, Kropotkin is kind of flipping our understanding of the way that uh, different factors play into how we've evolved to this point and just all species have evolved to wherever they are. Um, flipping that on its head, that interpretation of survival of the fittest and competition is too narrow for what Kropotkin observed in nature. The essays that he wrote build towards uh, his goal of flipping that on its head, what is considered common sense, or at least giving us some tools to investigate why these things might be considered common sense. Yeah, exactly. So, like, 
you were saying, even today, like we're taught in school uh, that the best or most rational way to organize human society uh, is like sort of along the lines of ruthless individual competition, uh, which is supposed to, I guess, lead to like the best and the brightest rising to the top. Um, uh, and I guess that's supposed to be what's best for everyone. Uh, but Kropotkin is taking exception to this. Uh, he's saying that mutual aid and cooperation as much or perhaps more than competition over resources are what's driving evolution. And that because of that biological fact that human beings are predisposed towards solidarity, uh, and then, you know, therefore it's through solidarity and mutual aid that human society progresses. Uh, so I guess the point that we're trying to get across in the beginning here is that uh, this is not, he's not anti-Darwin in this book, but what he's doing is reinterpreting uh, the way that Malthusians and social Darwinists interpret Darwin uh, and saying that they're inter- taking the term competition too literally. Yeah. So, I mean, like, what do you both think of uh, of that premise? I mean, I think we both, we all have our own um, ideas now that we've read the book and talked a bunch about it. I think I am personally pretty on board, but I didn't know going into the book that that's what it would be about. And I think it's pretty interesting. And I think it's something I've never heard anyone ever talk about. I've I've always ever heard it as you either believe in evolution, i.e. survival of the fittest, or you do not. And I've never heard anybody talk about, but does evolution necessarily mean survival by force or by competition? Yeah, that's interesting. Like It's almost like evolution and competition are synonymous a lot of the time when people talk about them. I had no idea what I was going to be getting going into this book. I guess I, you know, the only thing I knew about mutual aid was like sort of the idea that it's better to provide for your neighbors than to all rely on like a corporation to get your food or something like that. But that's like not really what this book is about. It's, it's something like a lot deeper than that, a lot more fundamental to say that like mutual aid is actually like a a law of nature. Mm -hmm. The idea of our first impressions of the book, but little thing I stumbled over in the intro. I was like, yes, that's what we were hoping to do is what are our, what's our understanding of this book, like superficially before we actually read it and totally echo that. Like the idea of mutual aid is this thing that leftists talk about, didn't really think about extrapolating it to the rest of the world. Yeah. And I think one thing uh, that I really want to drive home is that Kropotkin did not say that Darwin was wrong or that he was, uh, you know, like he didn't say like, this is just not how the world works. He, uh, in fact, quotes from the origin of species uh, where he says at the, this is, uh, this is Kropotkin at the very beginning of Darwin's memorable work. He insisted upon the term competition being taken and it's quote, large and metaphorical sense, including dependence, dependence of one being on another and including, which is more important, not only the life of the individual, but success in leaving progeny. And so this quote is basically about that Darwin never said it in the sense of like competition being directly about fighting or about like who has the most food, like winning in a situation. Uh, he meant it in a large and metaphorical sense. Um, and I, I think that it was reassuring that Kropotkin knew to lay this out, to make it clear that he's not challenging necessarily 
what Darwin said. He's expanding it. Uh, Tom, do you want to tell us a little bit about Kropotkin? Who was Kropotkin? (laughs) Who was this enigmatic prince? Kropotkin was a prince born in 1842 to Prince Alexei Petrovich Kropotkin. However, according to one biographer, under the influence of Republican teachings, Kropotkin dropped his princely title at age 12 and even rebuked his friends when they so referred to him. He joined the Tsarist army when he was 20, where he served under a liberal general, Boleslav Kazimirovich Kukul. Kukul was friends with various radical exiles, such as writer Mikhail Larionovich Mikhailov, a lot of Russian names and a lot of hard names in this one. Kropotkin, under order from Kukul, warned Mikhailov of Moscow police's investigation and his political activities, and in return, Mikhailov gave Kropotkin a book by Pierre Joseph Proudhon. Proudhon. (laughs) Proudhon. Proudhon, yeah, and we never really, we never found out what book that was. Oh, we did not. Anyone knows, they should let us know. They should absolutely let us know. Yeah, actually, we were thinking of having a contest. If you can tell us what it was with proof, and we don't have to read a book to prove it, uh, we don't know what you get, but maybe we'll say thank you. <laughs> maybe. We'll at the very least say thank you. <laughs> yeah, at the, very, at the very least, you'll get a thank you. Made some maybe on the thank you. Yeah, I will, yeah. I promise well, so you get I two can... thank yous and one maybe. <laughs> so, you know, if that's enough. But, I, yeah, I'm really curious. Um, I looked at the timelines of, you know, when the, he was writing, when uh, Kropotkin would have read it, and it's just kind of like it could have been any number of things. But Nate, I think you had a, you were like, it's probably this one. Uh, yeah, I just I chose the big one. What is property? I think so. In uh, 1864, Kropotkin traveled to Siberia for a geographical survey expedition, which he later explained he did because quote. There's, there is in Siberia an immense field for the application of the great reforms which have been made or are coming. But after becoming disillusioned with reform there, he devoted himself in, almost entirely to scientific exploration. He also continued his political readings, and by 1872, at the age of 30, he had declared himself an anarchist. So this was, I thought, interesting uh, that, you know, reading about him a little bit and that... Uh, it wasn't as though he came out fully formed with a lot of ideas and stuff. And and it even took, uh, what, another 10 years between an introduction, I think, to kind of anarchist ideas to where he felt like he would officially declare himself. I'm not sure exactly what that means if he... Uh... <laughs> yeah, you can't just declare yourself an anarchist and expect anything to happen. He sent in for his mail order badge, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you got the Dakota ring for sure. <laughs> but it was 1872, which was like a really long time ago, 150 years ago. So what the heck was going on in 1872? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> no, I actually have like a, a list of a few things uh, that I thought were pretty like fun facts about the year that Kropotkin might have known about. Uh, we can't know for sure. <laughs> But, like, interesting things, like the New York Met opened for the first time. Yellowstone National Park was established. Uh, Victoria Woodhull became the first nomin- first woman nominated for the president of the United States, although she was a year too young to qualify, so she didn't appear on the ballot. But I thought that was really interesting. Uh, Popular Science magazine was founded. Uh, 
I don't know. Do you guys want to keep going? There's a lot of facts here. <laughs> <laughs> I think we get the idea. Yeah, but it's it's interesting because it's a lot of stuff that I know of that still exists. Uh, Kropotkin's just like you and I. <laughs> and a couple of things for sure were probably on his radar. He seemed pretty like engaged, obviously was really interested in exploration. So further down the list here, we've got the HMS Challenger began a four-year scientific expedition from Portsmouth, England, and that expedition laid the foundation for the science of oceanography. So even though Kropotkin was in Siberia, still in the realm, I think the pool for scientific research was probably a lot smaller back then. So I'd imagine that was a pretty big event for his circles. Kropotkin later became the secretary of the physical geography section of the Russian Geographical Society. He actually contributed most of the Russian geographical articles to the 11th edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica. An impressive little footnote uh, that, you know, he was doing real work, but also was that work science? Yeah. So this is something we like talked about a little bit at the beginning, but uh, like Kropotkin is a scientist, right? Or you know, he's not necessarily like writing. He's he's not necessarily setting out to write a political screed when when he first gets the idea to make to put this book down. He's like actually doing scientific observations in Siberia. But like something we had talked about is that like it's not necessarily the same kind of science that we talk about today. It's like much more observational than like experimental, right? He's like he's just like seeing things and writing down what he sees and being like, oh, look, those, uh, those caribou are helping each other. I'm going to just jot that down here, and that's, uh, that's science. Get that published. I really liked, the, and we're probably going to jump into this, but um, the, just the, like, the candid like, nature of his writing, that he was like, very surprised to find what he found when, indeed, he went out there with a very different understanding of the ways that animals engage with each other and, like, evolution works yeah for sure yeah and and that's i guess a good uh transition into talking about the book here uh like tom mentioned it's 1864 kropotkin goes to siberia as part of the scientific expedition uh and the origin of species had just come out five years before that and so kropotkin's got his copy in hand ready to do some first-hand observations you know and compare what he sees uh with what he's read in darwin's book uh, but he comes to the conclusion that Darwin's work, or at least the popular conception of Darwin's work, is leaving a big part of the picture out. He says, and I'm going to quote a little bit extensively here from the book, he says, quote, two aspects of animal life impressed me most during the journeys which I made in my youth in eastern Siberia and northern Manchuria. One of them was the extreme severity of the struggle for existence, which most species of animals have to carry on against an inclement nature. And the other, even... And the, and the other was that even in those few spots where animal life teemed in abundance, I failed to find, although I was eagerly looking for it, that, be, that bitter struggle for the means of existence among animals belonging to the same species, which was considered by most Darwinists, though not always by Darwin himself, as the dominant characteristic of the struggle for life and the main factor of evolution. In all these scenes of animal life with past, which passed before my eyes, I saw mutual aid and mutual support carried on to an extent that made me suspect it a feature of the greatest importance. And so that's Kropotkin's thesis, uh, that mutual aid and not competition is the main factor of evolution. Uh, and it is pretty subversive if you think about it. Uh, we mentioned at the top that even this to this day, we're taught the version of Darwin that Kropotkin's arguing against here. Uh, 
And the reason that that conventional interpretation has such staying power, obviously, is that it flatters those that are in power. It says that if you're rich, uh, it's because you're the fittest. And if you're poor, it's because you are unfit in some way. It takes zero-sum competition that's already present in capitalism uh, and the violent repression of the state and raises those things to like the level of a natural law. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it's one of those kinds of questions that, you know, it seems like, well, if it's true, shouldn't this be a more widely known or more widely discussed sort of thing? But then, you know, it starts to sound conspiratorial when you say like, well, it's being repressed by capitalism. But it's kind of like, is? <laughs> like, I don't know how else to, to think of it because if if that if it's you know if the people if, if people writing textbooks and such uh i don't think it's intentional i i think it's you know sort of a um sort of an uh, bias that that comes through uh without intending it but it's kind of like just cuz it's so steeped yeah. in the culture and the ways that we've been writing history all along exactly whoever we is i guess this is a very like there's always a lens. Yeah, like if you're, I don't know, writing a history book and the history books you've read all said this, you know, or if you're writing a biology book and all the biology books you've read said this, um, you know, it's there's not a lot of room, I think, to discuss this, especially since I've never heard anyone bring this up. Maybe I just wasn't paying enough attention. Uh, yeah, it it seems like, you know, you can still see it in animals and insects, you can still, it's not like that has changed and it's not, oh, that's, I think that's a good question is, um, is, is he correct? Which I guess we're going to find out. Hopefully at the end we can discuss, like, did he, um, did he come to the, to the correct conclusions, I guess. What's interesting is that it's not as though Darwin wrote Origin of Species and then we got these ideas and started teaching it to ourselves. Uh, actually in Kropotkin, talks about this explicitly in his book uh it's actually that we had those ideas already in this hierarchical you know capitalist society uh and then we looked at nature and because we had these ideas in our heads you know that's sort of just we read that into nature we're looking for the familiarity i guess like the confirmation bias or whatever yeah exactly and so i thought like a, a really striking example of this uh which shocked me when i read it in the book um, Kropotkin says the term competition originated from the narrow Malthusian concept of competition between each and all, and thus, thus lost its narrowness in the minds of one who knew nature. Uh, and so the origin, Darwin's origin of species comes out in 1859 and, uh, Malthus's sort of infamous essay, uh, the one that's, you know, still to this day referenced, uh, as excuse for eugenics, you know, it's the idea that an ecosystem or like the planet can only support so many individuals and that if you try to like feed people who are starving they're just going to have more babies and then just more people are going to starve and yeah it's just bullshit that is there that it's used to defend not giving food to hungry people um anyway that essay that comes out in 1798 so it came out you know uh, like 60 years before the origin of species came out uh i don't know that that really shocked me the different writers and historians and scientists or whoever that Kropotkin references in the book 
is really helpful. We weren't able to trace back. Uh, not everybody stood the, you know, the the test of time in our culture that Malthus and Darwin did, but the different references that Kropotkin is making to other thinkers is really fascinating in this book. I think that's something that uh, can be kind of challenging when reading theory. Like nothing exists on its own and everyone is constantly bouncing ideas back and forth, like getting inspiration from other pieces of work. And um, that's that can be a tough thing about reading theory is that you don't always know all of those pieces that they're pulling from. I, I one of the things that I was surprised by, I guess, which maybe it shouldn't be so surprising, but were the number of references to other studies and and just he knows he knew so many things. He was obviously very much uh, investing a lot into doing this. He was not. It's not just like he just you know saw a couple of things, wrote it down, and said, "Oh, that's got to be the conclusion." He has all kinds of supporting evidence from firsthand to secondhand to, you know, many, many books, um, you know, whether or not those people are correct, like that's kind of a, a what, an appeal to authority maybe. But, um, you know, it's at least something when you are able to cite sources when you're writing a book that's kind of a split between biology and history and uh, politics. Um, he has just many, many, many sources. <laughs> And yeah, absolutely. And I found that helps to uh, situate this piece of work historically more than if he didn't cite any sources. Like you know, we we didn't we didn't go on to learn about mutual aid, a factor of evolution in school. But like this is still like extremely rigorous. And reading back on it now, like you can you can kind of see where it fits into history at that point. And also kind of read onto like why or how it possibly just got eaten up into the black hole of history and we didn't hear about it too much afterward. Yeah, I think that's important because uh, we met, you know, we talked about it earlier, but when you start challenging something as like fundamental as our culture's interpretation of Darwin, you start to sound kind of like a crazy person or like a conspiracist of some sort. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I guess the sort of idea is like, Okay, but if this were true, like, why would I just be hearing about it now? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's important to note that, like, this isn't just him talking. This is all based on direct observations, like you all pointed out, like plenty of citations, the the most up to date science at the time. Um, and that's like to juxtapose with uh, Malthus in his uh, essay on the pop- principle of population, which was done. Uh, just sort of like off the top of his head without doing any observation of nature to see whether these like so-called natural laws held. Um, but it became common sense in the culture and Darwin read it. And when Darwin was writing his origin of species, he sort of has this in mind and, and writes it into, uh, into his book and the people reading his book, read it into his book. But nowadays, you know, it's sort of reversed. If you ask sort of a Malthusian or a social Darwinist, to uh, defend their views, they would like point to Darwin and say, well, it goes back to, you know, nature and Darwin. Uh, but in reality, it's the other way around. Malthus came first. And that was my point with bringing up Malthus earlier. Yeah, I didn't mean to get uh, lost on that because I think that's a really good point that there's kind of like this feedback loop of how we are defining evolution. And it kind of starts with Malthus inadvertently starts there. Like you, like you said, Nate, it's weird because it comes off sounding conspiratorial, 
but it's because kind of like the framework that we have is built off of something that this goes it's built against. on a different conspiracy right <laughs> exactly yeah, that's a yeah, good point. totally <laughs> all right so i think that yeah we talked about the introduction there a good amount um probably time to move on to the first two chapters here uh both of these chapters are titled mutual aid among animals uh tom you want to talk a little bit about these chapters yeah so kropotkin starts out with insects like ants and bees and beetles and just does all these references to things that he's seen in nature and that he's read about uh for instance he references the swiss myrmecologist august forel as having emptied a bag of ants in a meadow and watching as, quote, the crickets ran away, abandoning their holes to be sacked by the ants. The grasshoppers and the crickets fled in all directions. The spiders and the beetles abandoned their prey in order not to become prey themselves. So ants could be pretty strong, a pretty strong army, even though individually they're very small, um, and they probably wouldn't be so intimidating to, like, a spider. A spider would eat the ant, but uh, even more incredible to me is that ants will always give food to a hungry comrade ant, or they'll be treated as an enemy, and if they feed an enemy ant, the enemy ants will treat that ant as a friend. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. So ants will just, like, if you're cool with them, you're cool with them, but if you try to be greedy, then you're out of the nest. Yeah, and I've seen, like, I saw a video on YouTube about this, uh basically this very this very specific thing from mutual aid where it talks about the ants but it showed like pictures and you know a video of the ants doing things but uh yeah like this this thing of if an ant's got food and another ant says it is hungry the ant just gives it to him every time i think that's really interesting because even if it's just a biological thing that they do even if it's instinctual it's an instinct for a reason, right? Exactly. Is the ant the one, one of the animals, one of the insects that had a very specific, like, reservoir that they would store nutrients for this purpose? That they would, like, vomit from this reservoir in order to feed their hungry friend? In case we want to talk about ant vomit I, on this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I think that they do. I, I, yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> if I know ants. Kropotkin really liked ants, but in pop culture, often ants are like the big bad communists or, you know, bad guys in movies. As like collective hive mind and everyone associates that with communism. So like, and the red. So like everything about ants ends up being just an easy shorthand for collectivism bad. When really it's super cool and necessary for the survival of their species. Take notes. Exactly. He talks a bunch about birds in the book, probably because they're so easy to observe. And that at the time, biology and science was not nearly as advanced as it is now. But um, he also, I think, drew a lot of conclusions about birds that are kind of like, I don't know if that follows things like parrots dying from the loss of a friend. That seems a little hard to prove. Um, but he also, you know, has a lot of pretty interesting uh, uh, quotes and facts. Uh, like Or stories, at least. Again, we're yeah, not really stories. sure on... I think we did we did try to double-check some of the things that we learned in this book. And, like, most of it seemed to line up. Like we said, Kropotkin does, like, 
have a lot of sources and anecdotal observation stuff. And birds, as you said, ornithology is a really long-standing like science. I, I, you know, I tried to look up a lot of the sources and things, and I at least tried to look up, um, you know, what do people think of this book now? Yeah, these first two chapters, and really the whole book, Kropotkin rattles off a whole bunch of examples of the concept of mutual aid as a factor of evolution throughout birds and bees and reptiles and mammals. and Yeah, he just goes through the whole animal kingdom. And it's fascinating just as like a, a, you know, reading off all of those examples, but it does get kind of repetitive, which is why we're just pulling the highlights here for you. Yeah, this part about um, mammals, he says, uh, all these, this is a whole paragraph quote, but it was interesting, I guess. All these mammals live in societies and nations, sometimes numbering hundreds of thousands of individuals. Although now, after three centuries of gunpowder civilization, we find but the debris of the immense aggregations of old. How trifling in comparison with them are the numbers of the carnivores, and how false, therefore, is the view of those who speak of the animal world as if nothing were to be seen in it but lions and hyenas plunging their bleeding teeth into the flesh of their victims. One might as well imagine that the whole of human life is nothing but a succession of war massacres. Rodents don't get the spotlight that all of the bloody... Yeah, all like the the charismatic megafauna. Yeah, definitely. Like, because if you think about it, like the vast majority of all animals aren't carnivores. Like, in fact, in most ecosystems, like, the yeah, you're gonna have like hundreds of deer and like ten wolves, right? And then you know, for those deer, you have like thousands of blades of grass that they're gonna eat. So basically, he's just making the point that there's so few carnivores that to like look at like I don't know the bloody competition between carnivores as like definitive of the way animals act doesn't make any sense. And like, honestly, like, I think even that is being a little too generous because, uh, you know, we, we keep saying wolf, like, but wolves actually do live in packs and they do practice mutual aid amongst each other. So I don't know. I think his point is even stronger than, than the, than what he thinks he's making here. It's interesting because just in my lifetime alone, I've, I've heard the trope go from people talking about lone wolves and people talking about that sort of thing to having to continually remind people that that was not real that that was a study done like in solitary like in you know not in conditions that made sense and uh i believe that the person that did the study said like that's not how wolves act like but we still talk about it it's still the pervasive um idea yeah it totally like it turns out now again we it's a great example of uh we were reading hierarchies that we already assumed existed into what we were looking at um but if i'm not mistaken it turns out that like what we thought were like the alpha pair of a wolf pack are actually just like sort of the mommy and daddy of the wolf pack and it's all a big family and it tends to just be like the oldest the oldest couple that it's reproducing or something all right uh one more point i wanted to make sure that we covered here uh because i thought it was pretty interesting uh so you know obviously we've talked a lot about how Kropotkin. Uh, is making the point that mutual aid is sort of the engine driving evolution uh, rather than competition. But he actually makes sort of a deeper point, which I thought was really interesting. He says, as to the intellectual faculty, which every Darwinist will agree with Darwin, is the most powerful arm in the struggle for life, uh, he will also have to admit that intelligence is an eminently social faculty. Uh, language, imitation, and accumulated experience are so many elements of growing intelligence with the un- which the unsociable animal is deprived 
And therefore, we find at the top of each class of animals, the ants, the parrots, and the monkeys, all combining the greatest sociability with the highest development of intelligence. So basically, what he's saying here is that not only is mutual aid, you know, in the form of sociability here, uh, the driving force of evolution, but actually that evolution itself appears to have a trajectory towards more sociability, right? So we don't have to like put any stock in his language about certain animals being at the tops of classes of animals uh, to say that if we look at evolution as sort of a natural history that takes place through time, more recently evolved species, and of course, like the most obvious example of this is humans, are like tend to have like more complex intelligence, more sociability, in fact, so that like not only is mutual aid sort of the engine here, but that we're if we're moving in a direction, it's a direction of uh, more sociability and like deeper forms, more advanced forms of mutual aid. He also talks elsewhere about how like mammals will like live apart but just come together to emigrate or something, and how like it's gone from being instinctive to being something like we purposely choose to do. So, you know, obviously if you take, if you like take that idea uh, and tie it back with his beef with the social Darwinists and Malthusians, like we were talking about at the top, um, we can see how like you can interpret these, this sort of trajectory of natural evolution to say, well, then if we're going to continue that trajectory uh, through human society, it needs to sort of be in the direction of more sociability rather than like, more competition among people rather than dividing people apart. I found this to be a pretty interesting point given what we're taught to understand about human interaction and competition. Like all of these characteristics, all these attributes that we tend to characterize as good, like intelligence. And uh, there's a quote about courage as well and how all of these attributes that we consider fundamentally good and important to I don't even want to say progress but just survival we have those because of our evolution through mutual aid and it feels like I don't know if it's like a if it's a capitalism thing but somewhere along the line it got twisted that we revere the individual as independently having these characteristics the idea that we have these at all is because of our sociability because of our like helping one another mm -hmm. yeah and that's a big claim but he doesn't even get into humans for a few chapters which is interesting uh you know it's it's hard because we all want to immediately start tying it into our you know experience right now what's going on and and everything like that um and so people listening might be wondering like well, you know, that's that's a big claim. Where's your evidence? Well, it's coming. <laughs> he's got a lot of evidence about how humans Yeah, he's gonna connect yeah. the dots. Yeah. I would just I liked I'd like to pull the, the very last paragraph of chapter two because it makes kind of a, an interesting transition to the next chapters. It says Don't compete. Competition is always injurious to the species. And you have plenty of resources to avoid it. That is the tendency of nature, not always realized in full, but always present. That is the watchword, which comes to us from the bush, the forest, the river, the ocean. Therefore, combine, practice mutual aid. That is the surest means for giving to each and all 
the greatest safety, the best guarantee of existence and progress, bodily, intellectual, and moral. That is what nature teaches us. And that is what all those animals which have attained the highest position in their respective classes have done. Beautiful. A question that we want to ask throughout these different works is how well is the book doing so far to prove its case? So after reading chapter one and two, how does mutual aid as a factor of evolution stack up? You know, I say so far so good. You know, I, I, it was a lot of examples, but I think sort of the deluge of them was pretty convincing. You know, when you see example after example proving his point, it's hard to uh, disagree with him. Uh, I guess the one question that we had talked about discussing, and which I think is important, is uh, this idea that he like went out to nature and observed it and said, like, oh, I actually don't see competition out here. So that's not a good thing to base society off of. But if he had seen competition, would that mean that it is a good thing? Right? Like, should we be taking this sort of like naturalistic justification for the way we organize society? I, I think that's a good question. Um, and I think that, you know, looking at the first couple of chapters of this book, they're not, they, they do make a case for nature working in a mutual aid fashion, but they don't make a case necessarily. And they make a case for, you know, uh, animals and insects evolving because of that, I think, but they don't make necessarily a case for it being uh, the best way to organize society. And um, in fact, I think it's it's kind of a bad idea to try to tie things like our ethics to biology, things that, you know, things like Jordan Peterson does with lobsters and stuff. Uh, like, I don't think, I don't think anybody yeah, needs definitely. to be, you know, immediately giving people food because they ask for it and you have it. I don't, I, I think that we should, everyone should be fed, but I don't think it's like we need to be just doing that individually. You don't think we should be regurgitating <laughs> into each other's mouths? I, I think, you know, with, um, if you can get consent, I think that's fine, but. <laughs> <laughs> I hope we didn't cut the ant part earlier. That's not going to make any fucking sense. <laughs> we maybe don't have to get into in this episode, but as like a food for thought not regurgitated food necessarily but something to chew on for yourself and for others around you this can't be our <laughs> podcast thing <laughs> but we touched on this a little bit and just the idea of why do we know malthus 200 years later but not kropotkin yeah i mean i think it's hard to find an answer that at least for myself as a leftist is going to be a better explanation than just power than just Malthus's story flatters power. Uh, but Kropotkin's like sort of shakes the foundations that power has laid for itself. Right. Like if you are an incredibly rich person because you've been like a cutthroat capitalist your whole life, it's much nicer to hear. Well, yeah, that's like how nature works. You're supposed to be doing that versus like, actually that's like really anti-ecological and that's like, moving us in the wrong direction and you should be like distributing your resources to anybody who needs them. You know, I mean, it's pretty obvious which, which story is more flattering there. To me, like one of the more interesting things of coming out of this book is how often people reference survival of the fittest, uh, just as fact, just as like, that's, 
you know, for any time they want to make a case for being selfish, it's just that's evolution. So you can't argue with science. And I think that's maybe the most frustrating thing now, having this uh, broader view of evolution and this broader idea of what can contribute to survival of the fittest being like, you know, the most fit might be a society that helps each other rather than individuals killing each other. But that's not the frame of reference that anybody has. At least until they listen to this podcast. Once everyone hears this podcast, uh, or, you know, better yet, you could read the book, but <laughs> uh, the book is... Is that better? That's not <laughs> no, no, you're for. destroying our oh, fan sorry, base when I'm you sorry. say that. <laughs> yeah, we need to do so well that people won't even miss not having read the book. Yep, you're right. The book is garbage now. It doesn't compare to our summation <laughs> yeah. of it. <laughs> We're just going to get rid of all of the copies in existence and replace it with this recording. Well, thanks for listening to our very first episode of Works in Theory. Yeah, thank you, everybody. We uh, will be back with our next episode. We're going to keep going with this book, uh, Mutual Aid, A Factor of Evolution. Uh, so we, today we discussed the intro and the first two chapters on animals. Uh, and for our next show, I think we're going to try to discuss most of the rest of the book, which is about human society. Uh, notably, we will be skipping a lot of chapters three and four, uh, which we have dubbed the racism chapters, because uh, they just sort of have a lot of like outdated 18th century European views of indigenous people that uh, are not only sort of offensive to listen to, but uh, in a lot of ways not very useful because of the Eurocentrism involved in their description. Uh, but we'll talk more about that next week. Uh, for the time being, thanks for listening to Works in Theory podcast, uh, the podcast where we ask if a better world is indeed possible. Uh, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Works in Theory podcast and on Twitter at Works Theory pod. Bye bye. Communism works in theory.